Chapter 3 of The Crocodile by Fyodor Dostoevsky, translated by Constance Garnett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 3. And yet, it was not a dream, but actual, indubitable fact. Should I be telling the story if it were not? But, to continue. It was late, about nine o'clock before I reached the arcade, and I had to go into the crocodile room by the back entrance, for the German had closed the shop earlier than usual that evening. Now, in the seclusion of domesticity, he was walking about in a greasy old frock coat, but he seemed three times as pleased as he had been in the morning. It was evidently that he had no apprehensions now, and that the public had been coming many more. The mother came out later, evidently to keep an eye on me. The German and the mother frequently whispered together. Although the shop was closed, he charged me a quarter rouble. What unnecessary exactitude. You will every time pay. The public will one rouble, and you one quarter pay, for you are the good friend of your good friend, and I a friend respect. Are you alive? Are you alive, my cultured friend? I cried, as I approached the crocodile expecting my words to reach Ivan Matveitch from a distance and to flatter his vanity. Alive and well, he answered, as though from a long way off or from under the bed, though I was standing close beside him. Alive and well, but of that later, how are things going? As though purposely not hearing the question, I was just beginning with sympathetic haste, to question him how he was, what it was like in the crocodile, and what, in fact, there was inside a crocodile. Both friendship and common civility demanded this, but with capricious annoyance he interrupted me. How are things going? he shouted, in a shrill and, on this occasion, particularly revolting voice, addressing me peremptorily as usual. I described to him my whole conversation with Timofey Semyonitch, down to the smallest detail. As I told my story, I tried to show my resentment in my voice. The old man is right, Ivan Matveitch pronounced, as abruptly as usual in his conversations with me. I like practical people and can't endure sentimental milksops. I am ready to admit, however, that your idea about a special commission is not altogether absurd. I certainly have a great deal to report, both from a scientific and from an ethical point of view. But now all this has taken a new and unexpected aspect, and it is not worthwhile to trouble about mere salary. Listen attentively. Are you sitting down? No, I am standing up. Sit down on the floor, if there is nothing else, and listen attentively. Resentfully, I took a chair and put it down on the floor with a bang in my anger. Listen, he began dictatorially. The public came today in masses. There was no room left. In the evening, and the police came in to keep order. At eight o'clock, 
that is, earlier than usual the proprietor thought it necessary to close the shop, and end the exhibition to count the money he had taken, and prepare for tomorrow more conveniently. So I know there will be a regular fair tomorrow, so we may assume that all the most cultivated people in the capital, the ladies in the best society, the foreign ambassadors, the leading lawyers, and so on, will all be present. What's more, people will be flowing here from the remotest provinces of our vast and interesting empire. The upshot of it is that I am the cynosure of all eyes, and though hidden to sight, I am eminent. I shall teach the idle crowd taught by experience. I shall be an example of greatness and resignation to fate. I shall be, so to say, a pulpit from which to instruct mankind. The mere biological details I can furnish about the monster I am inhabiting are of priceless value, and so far from repining at what has happened, I confidently hope for the most brilliant of careers. You won't find it wearisome, I asked, sarcastically. What irritated me more than anything was the extreme pomposity of his language. Nevertheless, it all rather disconcerted me. What on earth, what can this frivolous blockhead find to be so cocky about? I muttered to myself. He ought to be crying instead of being cocky. No, he answered my observation sharply, for I am full of great ideas. Only now can I at leisure ponder over the amelioration of the lot of humanity. Truth and light will come forth now from the crocodile. I shall certainly develop a new economic theory of my own, and I shall be proud of it, which I have hitherto been prevented from doing by my official duties and my trivial distractions. I shall refute everything and be a new Fourier. By the way, did you give Timofey Semyonitch the seven roubles? Yes, out of my own pocket, I answered, trying to emphasize that fact in my voice. We will settle it, he answered superciliously. I confidently expect my salary to be raised, for who should get a raise if not I? I am of the utmost service now, but to business. My wife? You are, I suppose, inquiring after Elena Ivanovna? My wife, he shouted, this time in a positive squeal. There was no help for it. Meekly, though gnashing my teeth, I told him how I had left Elena Ivanovna. He did not even hear me out. I have special plans in regard to her, he began impatiently. If I am celebrated here, I wish her to be celebrated there. Savants, poets, philosophers, foreign mineralogists, statesmen, after conversing in the morning with me, will visit her salon in the evening. From next week onwards, she must have an at-home every evening. With my salary doubled, we shall have the means for entertaining, and, as the entertainment must not go beyond tea and hired footmen, 
that's settled. Both here and there they will talk of me. I have long thirsted for an opportunity for being talked about, but could not attain it fettered by my humble position and low grade in the service. And now all this has been attained by a simple gulp on the part of the crocodile. Every word of mine will be listened to, every utterance will be thought over, repeated, printed, and I'll teach them what I am worth. They shall understand at last what abilities they have allowed to vanish in the entrails of a monster. This man might have been foreign minister or might have ruled a kingdom, some will say, and that man did not rule a kingdom, others will say. In what way am I inferior to Garnier Pageshki, or whatever they're called? My wife must be a worthy second. I have brains. She has beauty and charm. She is beautiful, and that is why she is his wife, some will say. She is beautiful because she is his wife. Others will amend. To be ready for anything, let Elena Ivanovna buy tomorrow the encyclopedia edited by Andrei Kraevsky that she may be able to converse on any topic. Above all, let her be sure to read the political leader in the Petersburg News, comparing it every day with a voice. I imagine that the proprietor will consent to take me sometimes with the crocodile to my wife's brilliant salon. I will be in a tank in the middle of the magnificent drawing room, and I will scintillate with witticisms which I will prepare in the morning. To the statesman I will impart my projects. To the poet I will speak in rhyme. With the ladies I can be amusing and charming without impropriety, since I shall be no danger to their husband's peace of mind. To all the rest I shall serve as a pattern of resignation to fate and the will of providence. I shall make my wife a brilliant literary lady. I shall bring her forward and explain her to the public. As my wife, she must be full of the most striking virtues, and if they are right in calling Andrei Alexandrovich our Russian Alfred de Monset, they will be still more right in calling her our Russian Yevgenia Tour. I must confess that although this wild nonsense was rather in Ivan Matveyevich's habitual style, it did occur to me that he was in a fever and delirious. It was the same every day, Ivan Matveyevich, but magnified twenty times. My friend, I asked him, are you hoping for a long life? Tell me, in fact, are you well? How do you eat? How do you sleep? How do you breathe? I am your friend, and you must admit that the incident is most unnatural, and consequently my curiosity is most natural. Idle curiosity and nothing else, he pronounced sententiously. But you shall be satisfied. You ask how I am managing in the entrails of the monster. To begin with, the crocodile, to my amusement, turns out to be perfectly empty. His inside consists of a sort of huge empty sack made of gutta percha like the elastic goods sold in the Gorohovi Street, in the Morskaya, and, if I am not mistaken, in the Votsneski Prospect. Otherwise, if you think of it 
how could I find room? Is it possible? I cried, in a surprise that may well be understood. Can the crocodile be perfectly empty? Perfectly, Ivan Matveitch maintained, sternly and impressively. And in all probability, it is so constructed by the laws of nature. The crocodile possesses nothing but jaws furnished with sharp teeth, and besides the jaws, a tail of considerable length. That is all, properly speaking. The middle part between these two extremities is an empty space, enclosed by something of the nature of gutta-percha, probably really gutta-percha. But the ribs, the, the stomach, the intestines, the liver, the heart, I interrupted quite angrily. There is nothing, absolutely nothing of all that, and probably there never has been. All that is the idle fancy of frivolous travelers. As one inflates an air cushion, I am now with my person inflating the crocodile. He is incredibly elastic. Indeed, you might, as the friend of the family, get in with me, if you were generous and self-sacrificing enough. And even with you here, there would be room to spare. I even think that in the last resort I might send for Elena Ivanovna. However, this void, hollow formation of the crocodile is quite in keeping with the teachings of natural science. If, for instance, one had to construct a new crocodile, the question would naturally present itself. What is the fundamental characteristic of the crocodile? The answer is clear. To swallow human beings. How is one, in constructing the crocodile, to secure that he should swallow people? The answer is clearer still. Construct him hollow. It was settled by physics long ago that nature abhors a vacuum. Hence the inside of the crocodile must be hollow so that it may abhor the vacuum, and consequently swallow and so fill itself with anything it can come across. And that is the sole rational cause why every crocodile swallows men. It is not the same in the constitution of man. The emptier a man's head is, for instance, the less he feels the thirst to fill it, and that is the one exception to the general rule. It is all as clear as day to me now. I have deduced it by my own observation and experience, being, so to say, in the very bowels of nature, in its retort, listening to the throbbing of its pulse. Even etymology supports me, for the very word crocodile means voracity. Crocodile, crocodillo, is evidently an Italian word dating perhaps from the Egyptian pharaohs, and evidently derived from the French verb croquer, which means to eat, to devour, in general to absorb nourishment. All these remarks I intend to deliver as my first lecture in Elena Ivanovna's salon when they take me there in the tank. My friend, oughtn't you at least to take some purgative? I cried involuntarily. 
He's in a fever. A fever. He's feverish, I repeated to myself in alarm. Nonsense, he answered contemptuously. Besides, in my present position, it would be most inconvenient. I knew, though, you would be sure to talk of taking medicine. But my friend, how? How do you take food now? Have you dined today? No, but I am not hungry, and most likely I shall never take food again, and that too is quite natural. Filling the whole interior of the crocodile, I make him feel always full. Now he need not be fed for some years. On the other hand, nourished by me, he will naturally impart to me all the vital juices of his body. It is the same as with some accomplished coquettes who embed themselves in their whole persons for the night in raw steak, and then, after their morning bath, are fresh, supple, buxom, fascinating. In that way, nourishing the crocodile, I myself obtain nourishment from him. Consequently, we mutually nourish one another. But, as it is difficult even for a crocodile to digest a man like me, he must no doubt be conscious of a certain weight in his stomach, an organ which he does not, however, possess, and that is why, to avoid causing the creature suffering, I do not often turn over. And although I could turn over, I do not do so from humanitarian motives. This is the one drawback of my present position, and, in an allegorical sense, Timofey Semyonitch was right in saying I was lying like a log. But I will prove that even lying like a log, nay, that only lying like a log, one can revolutionize the lot of mankind. All the great ideas and movements of our newspapers and magazines have evidently been the work of men who were lying like logs. That is why they call them divorced from the realities of life. But what does it matter? They're saying that. I am constructing now a complete system of my own, and you wouldn't believe how easy it is. You have only to creep into a secluded corner or into a crocodile to shut your eyes, and you immediately devise a perfect millennium for mankind. When you went away this afternoon, I set to work at once and have already invented three systems. Now I am preparing the fourth. It is true that at first one must refute everything that has gone before, but from the crocodile it is so easy to refute it. Besides, it all becomes clearer, seen from the inside of the crocodile. There are some drawbacks, though small ones in my position, however. It is somewhat damp here, and covered with a sort of slime. Moreover, there is a smell of India rubber, like the smell of my old galoshes. That is all. There are no other drawbacks. Ivan Matveitch, I interrupted. All this is a miracle in which I can scarcely believe, and can you, can you intend never to dine again? What trivial nonsense you are troubling about, you thoughtless, frivolous creature! 
I talk to you about great ideas, and you understand that I am sufficiently nourished by the great ideas which light up the darkness in which I am enveloped. The good-natured proprietor has, however, after consulting the kindly mother, decided with her that they will every morning insert into the monster's jaws a bent metal tube, something like a whistle-pipe, by means of which I can absorb coffee or broth with bread soaked in it. The pipe has already been bespoken in the neighborhood, but I think this is superfluous luxury. I hope to live at least a thousand years, if it is true that crocodiles live so long, which, by the way, good thing I thought of it, you had better look up in some natural history tomorrow and tell me, for I may have been mistaken and have mixed it up with some excavated monster. There's only one reflection rather troubles me. As I am dressed in cloth, and have boots on, the crocodile can obviously not digest me. Besides, I am alive, and so am opposing the process of digestion with my whole willpower. For you can understand that I do not wish to be turned into what all nourishment turns into, for that would be too humiliating for me. For there is one thing I am afraid of. In a thousand years, the cloth of my coat unfortunately of Russian make, may decay, and then, left without clothing, I might perhaps, in spite of my indignation, begin to be digested. And though by day nothing would induce me to allow it, at night, in my sleep, when a man's will deserts him, I may be overtaken by the humiliating destiny of a potato, a pancake, or veal. Such an idea reduces me to fury. This alone is an argument for the revision of the tariff, and the encouragement of the importation of English cloth, which is stronger and so will withstand nature longer when one is swallowed by a crocodile. At the first opportunity I will impart the idea to some statesmen and at the same time to the political writers on our Petersburg dailies. Let them publish it abroad. I trust this will not be the only idea they will borrow from me. I foresee that every morning a regular crowd of them, provided with quarter rubles, from the editorial office will be flocking round me to seize my ideas on the telegrams of the previous day. In brief, the future presents itself to me in the rosiest light. Fever, fever, I whispered to myself. My friend, and freedom, I asked, wishing to learn his views thoroughly. You are, so to speak, in prison while every man has a right to the enjoyment of freedom. You are a fool, he answered. Savages love independence. Wise men love order. And if there is no order... Ivan Matveyitch, spare me, please. Hold your tongue and listen, he squealed, vexed at my interrupting him. Never has my spirit soared as now. In my narrow refuge, there is only one thing that I dread. 
the literary criticisms of the monthlies and the hiss of our satirical papers. I am afraid that thoughtless visitors, stupid and envious people, and nihilists in general, may turn me into ridicule. But I will take measures. I am impatiently awaiting the response of the public tomorrow, and especially the opinion of the newspapers. You must tell me about the papers tomorrow. Very good. Tomorrow I will bring a perfect pile of papers with me. Tomorrow is too soon to expect reports in the newspapers, for it will take four days for it to be advertised. But from today, come to me every evening by the back way through the yard. I am intending to employ you as my secretary. You shall read the newspapers and magazines to me, and I will dictate to you my ideas and give you commissions. Be particularly careful not to forget the foreign telegrams. Let all the European telegrams be here every day, but enough. Most likely you are sleepy by now. Go home and do not think of what I said just now about criticism. I'm not afraid of it, for the critics themselves are in critical position. One has only to be wise and virtuous, and one will certainly get on to a pedestal. If not Socrates, then Diogenes, or perhaps both of them together, that is my future role among mankind. So frivolously and boastfully did Ivan Matveitch hasten to express himself before me, like feverish, weak-willed women, who, as we are told by the proverb, cannot keep a secret. All that he told me about the crocodile struck me as most suspicious. How was it possible that the crocodile was absolutely hollow? I don't mind betting that he was bragging from vanity and partly to humiliate me. It is true that he was an invalid, and one must make allowances for invalids, but I must frankly confess I never could endure Ivan Matveitch. I've been trying all my life from a child up to escape from his tutelage and have not been able to. A thousand times over I have been tempted to break with him altogether, and every time I've been drawn to him again, as though I were still hoping to prove something to him or to revenge myself on him. A strange thing, this friendship. I can positively assert that nine-tenths of my friendship for him was made up of malice. On this occasion, however, we parted with genuine feeling. Your friend, a very clever man, the German said to me in an undertone as he moved to see me out. He had been listening all the time, attentively to our conversation. Apropos, I said, while I think of it, how much would you ask for your crocodile in case anyone wanted to buy it? Ivan Matveitch, who heard the question, was waiting with curiosity for the answer. It was evident that he did not want the German to ask too little. Anyway, he cleared his throat in a peculiar way on hearing my question. At first, the German would not listen, was positively angry. No one will dare my own crocodile to buy, he cried furiously, and turned as red as a boiled lobster. Me not want to sell the crocodile. I would not for the crocodile a million thalers take. 
I took a hundred and thirty thalers from the public today, and I shall tomorrow ten thousand take, and then a hundred thousand every day I shall take. I will not him sell. Ivan Matvejch positively chuckled with satisfaction. Controlling myself, for I felt it was a duty to my friend, I hinted coolly and reasonably to the crazy German that his calculations were not quite correct, that if he makes a hundred thousand every day, all Petersburg will have visited him in four days, and then there will be no one left to bring him rubles, that life and death are in God's hands, that the crocodile may burst, or Ivan Matveitch may fall ill and die, and so on, and so on. The German grew pensive. I will him drops from the chemist get, he said, after pondering, and will save your friend that he die not. Drops are all very well, I answered, but consider, too, that the thing may get into the law courts. Ivan Matveitch's wife may demand the restitution of her lawful spouse. You are intending to get rich, but... Do you intend to give Elena Ivanovna a pension? No, me not intent, said the German, in stern decision. No, we not intend, said the mother, with positive malignancy. And so would it not be better for you to accept something now at once, a secure and solid, though moderate sum, than to leave things to chance? I ought to tell you that I am inquiring simply from curiosity. The German drew the mother aside to consult with her in a corner where there stood a case with the largest and ugliest monkey of his collection. Well, you will see, said Ivan Matveitch. As for me, I was at that moment burning with the desire, first, to give the German a thrashing, next, to give the mother an even sounder one, and thirdly, to give Ivan Matveitch the soundest thrashing of all for his boundless vanity. But all this paled beside the answer of the rapacious German. After consultation with the mother, he demanded for his crocodile 50,000 rubles in bonds of the last Russian loan with lottery voucher attached, a brick house in Gorohovy Street with a chemist shop attached, and, in addition, the rank of Russian colonel. You see, Ivan Matveitch cried triumphantly, I told you so. Apart from this last senseless desire for the rank of a colonel, he is perfectly right, for he fully understands the present value of the monster he is exhibiting, the economic principle before everything. Upon my word, I cried furiously to the German, but what should you be made a colonel for? What exploit have you performed? What service have you done? In what way have you gained military glory? You are really crazy. Crazy? cried the German, offended. No, a person very sensible, but you very stupid. I have a colonel deserved. For that I have a crocodile shown, and in him a live Hafroth sitting. And... A Russian can a crocodile not show, and a live hafferth in him sitting, me extremely clever man, and much wish colonel to be. Well, goodbye then, Ivan Matveitch, I cried, shaking with fury, and I went out of the crocodile room, almost at a run. 
I felt that in another minute I could not have answered for myself. The unnatural expectations of these two blockheads were insupportable. The cold air refreshed me and somewhat moderated my indignation. At last, after spitting vigorously fifteen times on each side, I took a cab, got home, undressed, and flung myself into bed. What vexed me more than anything was my having become his secretary. Now I was to die of boredom there every evening, doing the duty of a true friend. I was ready to beat myself for it, and I did, in fact, after putting out the candle and pulling up the bedclothes, punch myself several times on the head and various parts of my body. That somehow relieved me, and at last I fell asleep, fairly soundly, in fact, for I was very tired. All night long I could dream of nothing but monkeys, but towards morning I dreamed of Elena Ivanovna. End of chapter 3 of The Crocodile by Fyodor Dostoevsky